If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. I feel like there's all sorts of different kinds of creativity. I would want to give that student lots of different activities so that they could explore lots of different ways of being creative and see which one resonates with them. Exciting ideas, creativity, and exploration are at the heart of Culver City Unified School District's current project. They're implementing an art and innovation lab for students in which the curriculum connects visual art, technology, and engineering. Eileen Pottinger is both an architectural designer and a scientist. Her previous experience includes both teaching chemistry and designing exhibitions for the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Currently, Eileen is serving as a full-time art and innovation lab teacher for Culver City Unified School District. Eileen, before we get to talking about this amazing project happening at Culver City Unified School District, I wish you'd tell me a little about your creative journey. How did you happen to go from being a chemistry teacher and a biologist to an award-winning designer and an architect? Well, I, when I was a kid, I loved doing creative things. But when I was a kid, you weren't really encouraged to do creative things. And if you could do math and science, you did math and science. That was just, you know, well, you can do that. Therefore, you're not going to do anything creative necessarily. And so, so it was frustrating for me because I love to make things. And I loved to, my mom used to do craft fairs, which back in the day were sort of these hokey things, you know, that people did, but she did them. And I loved going to them with her and I would make things and sell them. And my favorite thing was to organize crowns in order of the rainbow. And so I always had that, but then in school, my math and science skills were really great too. And so the teachers sort of pushed me at one point I had a teacher pushing me towards medical school. And I was like, that was in high school. And by that point I was self-assured enough to say, no, you know what? I'm not interested in becoming a doctor. I know that this is not something that interests me, but because I had those skills, that's where they pushed me. And that's why I majored in biology. I also just enjoy biology. And so I majored in it because I enjoyed doing it. And I sort of thought, okay, the creative stuff, that'll just be my hobby. And, and I'll major in biology because that's more practical, which I went to a liberal arts school. So it turned out to not necessarily be practical. And I started teaching my degrees in biology, but by the end of my time in college, I had done a lot more chemistry with it. I'd sort of turned towards chemistry with the biology that I was doing. And so when I got a chemistry teaching job, I started teaching chemistry and it was great. That was a very small private school. And so there was all sorts of different responsibilities that you had there. And I was assigned to work on the drama production after school there. So that was connected to some work that I'd done in college and, and in high school. And so that was sort of the beginning of like, maybe I can put these together. And then teaching chemistry was really the hands-on aspect of it that resonated with me. And I knew would resonate with students later. So teaching for me was always, I criticize teachers who are like this, but I was like this. It was always like, well, I don't know what else to do. I guess I'll teach. And I've always felt like that's not a good way to go into teaching. You should really be dedicated to it. But that's what I was doing. And so at some point I thought I got to stop doing this and just figure out what I want for my life. 
And so somebody said, what about architecture? And I thought, you know, that might be, I never really wanted to be an architect. I don't feel like my ego is big enough for that. <laughs> but, but I was like, you know, this might be the perfect blend of my analytical side with the structures and things like that you need to understand and my creative side, because that was what felt like it was lacking in my career at that point. And so I went to architecture school. I got a master's in architecture. I had a friend who connected me with somebody at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. And so I started working. I started working there when I was still going to school as an exhibition designer. And I continued after. And that is really what connected me more with the professional art world. And I was still doing things as a hobby. I was doing ceramics. I sew. I was doing calligraphy. I actually did that professionally for a while. So I've done a lot of things creatively. But then when I was at LACMA, that was when I was doing the exhibition design and I loved it. Everybody, whenever I tell people I was an exhibition designer at LACMA, they say, oh, that sounds fantastic. And I'm like, it was fantastic. But the design world is pretty intense in terms of the time it expects from you. And so when I had kids, it just felt like too much. And so I asked for part-time or work from home. And my boss there was like, no, we can't do that. And so I ended up quitting and figuring, okay, I'm going to see if I can cobble together freelance and then my son's school put in a makerspace and it's a mile from my house and my kid was going there and I thought I need to apply for this. And so I scrambled to get my teaching credential because before that my experience had been in private schools, but I got my teaching credential so that I could work in the makerspace. And at first it was part-time and I thought, okay, I'll do this part-time and I'll build my exhibition design business part-time. And I did a couple of little shows with my exhibition design business. And then the pandemic hit and I thought, oh, nobody's going to be doing exhibitions for a while. I need to set that aside. Maybe this is a sign. And at the same time, the administration at Culver City said, hey, we have part-time makerspace teachers and part-time art teachers at each school. So let's put this together. And so I said, okay, can I help build this program? And they said, sure. And that was really the thing that got me to feel what I feel like all teachers should feel, which is absolutely dedicated to educating children. It was like that T.S. Eliot quote. I can't remember the exact quote, but it's, I still travel a thousand miles and come back to where I started and know the place for the first time. I feel like that's been it's that's totally the wrong quote, but that's kind of been my journey is that I started out with teaching as feeling like sort of a fallback. And now I feel totally dedicated to it and really excited about how can we how can we educate children in terms of their creative abilities. And one important thing that I left out is that after I left LACMA, I started working at Otis part-time, Otis College of Art and Design. And now that started, that was actually one of my instructors from my graduate degree, who kind of pushed me into it. He invited me to a review. And that was a class that was about food trucks. It was like an art and design response to food trucks. So at first I thought, oh, good networking opportunity. But then it was just so much fun to have an intellectual discussion about food trucks. And so I just kept going through that. And then one day he said, you know, can I have you come to a lecture? And actually, I guess it's his fault that I'm back in teaching. Um, <laughs> eventually I said, you know, I used to teach. And he said, I know. And I said, oh, you're pushing me back. You're pushing me in that direction. And he's like, yes, I am. So he eventually got a job. He works at the University of Oregon now. And so they needed an instructor for his classes. And so that's how I started teaching there. And I'm still doing that. Now that I'm full-time at Culver City, 
I'm full-time at Culver City and then one afternoon a week I teach at Otis and it feels like a lot, but you know, for now I'm doing it. So that's my story. You're starting this brand new art and innovation lab at the Culver City Unified School District. I wish you'd tell me about this one. Yeah, I'll tell you all about it. Um, so I believe the person at the district who started putting the idea together was Heather Moses. She's the district arts coordinator. And I am part of the team of five people that put the curriculum together. And But they, as far as we're concerned, the curriculum is going to grow. So we put together what we are hoping is a good program. But we know that the way these things work in education is that over time, it's going to evolve. But what we put together is basically the idea is that the arts are going to enrich the maker ideas and the maker ideas are going to enrich the arts. And so some portion of it is separate where it's, you know, a straight up painting and drawing activity, for example, that would normally you would see in any elementary school classroom or on the maker side of things, the things that we did, a maker space is harder because not as many people are familiar with it. So understanding how it fits in can be hard for people. I'm kind of based on what your podcast is covering. I feel like maybe your audience will already know, but the kind of things we did in our makerspace were engineering design challenges, design thinking, technological, some small amount of robotics, things like makey makey. And so there's some classes that are straight up engineering design. Here's an engineering design challenge figured out. And so we still have those basics involved, but then we're also finding opportunities where we can put the two together. And some of those came from our collaborations with each other. So my background, I taught makerspace, but as you could tell from my description, I have a pretty strong arts background as well. And so I was sort of the missing link between the two areas. Although technically I was on the team, I was a makerspace teacher and we had two other makerspace teachers and we had two art teachers in terms of what they had done historically, all coming together to work on this program. And so at one point, one of the makerspace teachers said, you know, I did a design thinking activity. Her name's Courtney Young. She said, I did a design thinking activity in which during distance learning, in which the students designed a parade float. And maybe we should have that be as part of the program. And I can't remember whose idea it was, but somebody said, well, what if we code robots to move the parade float? And then the art teacher said, you know, we've done quilling before with the students. We feel like that's a really good thing to do in elementary art because it helps build their fine motor skills. And it's a form of art that they don't usually get exposed to. And so, so the art teachers, Margaret Alarcon and Hilary Stugger, the art teachers, they said, well, we've done this before. Maybe this can be incorporated. And so the plan is for us to do a parade float that's based on a theme that we teach the students quilling for them to use to decorate the parade float. And then they code a robot to move it around. And so those kind of things that came out of our discussions, we were like, oh, this will be so cool. And the best discussions were when we all started building on each other's ideas. And then a really cool thing happened this year. So the first part of the year is mostly the basics. So basically one class is straight up art activity, one class is straight up mostly engineering design at this point of the, of the year. And so we're going to be combining them more later on in the year. But we had a project in my first grade class where the students were making levers out of cardboard. And so they used brass fasteners and little strips of cardboard. And I just, I showed them how to make a lever and we talked about force and fulcrum and everything. And then I said, okay, now that you know how to make it, put a design on it. So I gave them crayons and markers and colored paper and magazines. And I said, collage onto it or draw onto it. And they, that was in and of itself, that was amazing, the kind of things that the students came up with. But then we did another project that was more, it was supposed to be more of an art project where they do a cityscape, they paint a cityscape, and then they cut out a dinosaur 
to put the dinosaur in the cityscape and reimagine what might happen if dinosaurs came back in current times. And so that was a project that they did, I don't know, a couple of weeks later. And one of the students came to me and he said, can I have a brass fastener? And I said, sure, why? And he said, because I want my dinosaur to move. And he realized from the lever project that if he connected his dinosaur with a brass fastener instead of glue stick, then he can move. He can grab the tail and move the dinosaur up and down. And so it's that kind of thing. That's what I mean when I say we expect the program to grow and evolve and change because we want to stay open to things like that, that the students might figure out on their own by making those connections, being in the same space, dealing with similar materials and the same person, same person teaching them. But that enables them to make those connections between the different um, disciplines. I'm thinking this student will eventually be learning how to animate something just from moving this dinosaur through the city. Yes. And actually, it's funny you bring up animation because that was one area that I think both when in the art planning and in the makerspace planning previous to this, we both were like, hmm, the animation would be a really great thing to work in. But we couldn't tell where it fit because... I mean, if you're going to do very basic animation, flipbooks are probably the best way and, and that we have plans to do those, but that's a drawing skill. And so is that more of an art thing? But then it's starting to get into technology because once you do stop motion and things like that, then and scientific concepts. So that's kind of more fell in the realm of makerspace. So one of the things we realized with bringing the programs together, that doing animation is one of the opportunities that we have now. And we've talked about working in more media arts into it because media arts get kind of lost in elementary school. And we haven't figured out how to do that yet, but we've had some discussions. When you say we have plans, where are you right now with doing some of these activities versus what your ultimate vision is? What's the timeline? The timeline? Well, that's a good question. I don't know exactly the timeline. I would say that in terms of an ultimate vision, right now we're kind of just all trying to get on top of what the space needs to be like. So some of us had originally when Culver City put in the makerspaces, they made rooms for the makerspaces that had lots of outlets and you know, made sure that they were going to work well for robotics and things like that. And then some of the schools had more of a traditional art room. So when the programs were put together, each school had to pick, there's five schools in Culver City. So it's not like there's a huge number of elementary schools, but each school had to pick which of these rooms they're going to use. And then there was one school that put in an entirely new space because they actually didn't have a room at all for, I think for either program. So the space considerations are something that I think are really going to contribute to the program that we haven't been able to get on top of yet. And specifically because I've been doing, personally, I've been doing research into the idea of teaching for artistic behavior, which we have not incorporated yet, but I see a lot of resonance between the maker ideas of, hey, here's a challenge, go figure it out. And the tab ideas, which are, you are an artist and I'm going to support you in your art, but I'm not going to tell you exactly what to do. And so I see resonance in there. And the way the tab works is that the space is set up in a way that students are able to be independent. And so that's why I'm kind of focusing on the space itself, because I feel like that's ultimately, ultimately, I want to get all of our spaces to a place in which the students can feel independent. And so when we bring up a project for them, there's less sort of scrambling for, uh-oh, I forgot to grab this paint or, or you know, oh, the brass fasteners are in a jar over in the corner because I forgot them there in the last time. You know, the space will be more set up so the students can be self-sufficient. And ultimately, I think that's where I would like to head with the program. And in terms of a timeline, I subscribe to, I'm trying to 
have a growth mindset myself. I feel like we're always telling students to have a growth mindset, but we oftentimes don't apply it to ourselves as teachers. And so I feel like for me, I don't, there's no timeline because I want it to continually improve. I want it to just every year I want there to be, and this is one of the growing pains of it is figuring out how we're going to do this. Every year I want us to evaluate projects. You know, individual teachers will try an activity and it doesn't seem to be working. So they throw it out and they try something else. And I want us to all be able to report back to each other and say, hey, this activity didn't work at all with my kindergartners. So I did this instead and it worked really well. And if you have time in your schedule, you should try this. I mean, our schedules are pretty are pretty in sync in terms of what we're doing, but we have to shift when we have stuff happen in the classroom. And I want us to each learn from each other in the way those shifts happen so that over time, we're just getting closer and closer and closer to this ideal program. And ultimately, if there were a goal, ultimately I wanna see a lot more collaboration with the classroom teachers so that we're supporting the content that's going on in their rooms. You have a wonderful blog post that brings up a couple of points, a couple of obstacles one which you've just alluded to is time because it takes time to do this but another is the fact that people kind of look at maker skills as oh that's nice as opposed to this could be a core of the class and the core of how the kids are learning what are some of the ways of getting around these obstacles well i think the number one way and i say this in the podcast in the blog post is to put these things in the school day to prioritize them in the school day because what I'm finding as the barrier to doing these activities is that the kids who really need it and are really going to thrive don't necessarily get exposed to it because they're relegated to after school activities. And so I think prioritizing it so that it can fit in the school day is helpful. One thing that is happening in Culver City that I think makes it helpful is that the time they spend with us is planning time for the teachers. The teachers don't stay. Now there's pros and cons to that. If the teachers stayed, then we could plug into what they're doing in the classroom better But by having it be a program that's giving them some prep time, it helps it to be more peaceful in terms of people making time in their schedules for it to happen in the school day. But I think that's probably the most important thing to make sure that it's accessible to everybody. But I also think that we need, we as a society need a shift in the way we think about creativity. And I think there's all sorts of books out there and all sorts of good thinkers who have talked about this. There was one that I read by Daniel Pink called In Your Right Brain. I'll think of it. But he talks about how we used to prioritize this analytical thinking like spreadsheets and being able to do math and things like that. And that now those things are getting automated or outsourced to other countries. And so in the U.S., we need that creative thinking. And probably eventually everywhere we were going to need that creative thinking, because if we're eventually going to be able to automate everything and robots are going to do things, robots are going to take away people's jobs, then the value of people is the creative thinking that the robots can't do. And so we need to, as a society, be prioritizing that. I think we need to prioritize it on the same level as at the elementary level as math and reading, that the creative skills are on par with those in my mind. And so I want a situation in which the classroom teachers are incorporating it into their classrooms because I want it to have that level of importance. But I also think that there's always going to be a need for an expert teacher there who who knows how to support that in the same way we have reading interventionists and, you know, math, math support people at a school. But I think it's a culture change, number one. And I think that it's making space in the school day and finding those logistical things like allowing teacher prep time and things like that, that's going to make it happen. 
Eileen talked about one of her major sources of inspiration. I feel like one thing that I would like to say mm-hmm. on this point of inspiration is that, so there's this short film called Kane's Arcade that you've probably heard of because it's pretty common. And in that video, the filmmaker Nirvan, at one point he says, this kid's a genius. And I think that all the time when I'm teaching kids, that a kid will come up with something and that phrase will just float through my head in Nirvan's voice. This kid's a genius because I feel like that's the thing that's really inspiring to me about kids is that the things they come up with, it's just brilliant sometimes. Like the one who said, hey, can I have a breast fastener to put this dinosaur on? And it's just like, what? what? Or once I had some kindergartners experimenting with motors and they said, we don't know what to do. And I gave them some pieces of paper and they started sticking the paper onto the pin of the motor and started getting color mixing. And so they just sort of figured it out because I let them explore. And that's the, this kid's a genius is, it sort of hits my mantra and the thing that keeps me going on those hard days. How can the community or anyone listening right now best support you in your goals? I would say I would want people to educate themselves about how kids learn, because I think that there's still a sense. So current education, education, I feel like has, there's a lot of great stuff about meeting students where they are and making sure they feel motivated and making sure they feel comfortable because their emotions are going to hijack or support the learning process. And so all of those things are happening right now. If you go to an education course, I've taken education courses relatively recently because I got my credential relatively recently, but I still feel like there's a sense that we need to just open kids' heads and pour the knowledge in. And that's not really how it works. And if you look at constructivism, which, you know, when was that first? That was like the forties, maybe. If you look at just progressive education, it helps people to understand why students need to be building their own knowledge. They're taking the stuff they already know, which learning starts at birth. So they already know a lot by the time they get to kindergarten and they're putting it together with something else. And I would want people, especially parents, but teachers and anybody who's interested in education to educate themselves about the learning capacity of kids through play, through exploration, and through hands-on activities. What if today you had a student in your class who is a girl who is just like you were, who really loves anything creative, and now you're going to try to direct her along the lines of what kind of a career could she train for that are going to incorporate those creative skills? What kinds of activities would you give her? Okay, so I would try to clarify what type of creativity she, so I feel like there's all sorts of different kinds of creativity. And I was talking to an artist recently. He's, he's actually a dad at the school. And he I asked him what his job was like. And he said, well, I do commercial work and I do some interior design work. And then, of course, I have my own studio and I do my own work. And I put out a book. And so his life has all these components that together make his career, right? And so I would want to give that student lots of different activities so that they could explore lots of different ways of being creative. Because I feel like the most important thing for kids is to try out every little thing and see which one resonates with them and which one they take to. I had a class recently and there was, there was this boy in the class who's super talented. I've been teaching him since he was in kindergarten probably. And he drew a picture it was a picture of a robot and it was just, it was just pencil, but it was beautifully shaded and the forms were perfect. And, and one of the other students said, oh yeah, he's the best drawer in the class. And so at the end of class, I said, whoa, 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 like 
first of all, that's wonderful if you think he's the best drawer in the class. But you also need to understand that him being the so-called best, that's just one way of thinking about how somebody is going to make art. So he's particularly proficient in this way. And that's wonderful. We should celebrate that. But number one, I don't want him resting on his laurels. I want him to continue working. And then I pointed out another project of a girl who had used colored pencils in a way that was just, she got these really beautifully saturated colors. And I said, okay, now look at this example. She's clearly got some talent or some experience in getting the most out of this particular media. And so I think that that's the kind of thing that we need to impress on kids is that there's all different ways to be creative. They should try all of them and they should try to just strike the word best from their vocabulary. We can celebrate when somebody is talented as long as we make sure we don't get stuck there. When we say somebody's talented, sometimes that just feels like, okay, that's letting me off the hook. I don't have to work anymore because that person over there is talented and I'm not. And so I'm going to let them do all the work. And that's not at all the case. Everybody is talented in some way. And whatever is exciting to you is something that you can improve. So mostly I would say a lot, try lots of different things and whatever the thing is that resonates, keep going, keep doing it, keep learning about it. I think you really have to be humble. And I think adults are much more challenged at this than kids. You really have to be humble and say, okay, so I've learned a lot about this, or I know a lot about this, but there's always something else I can learn. I see a lot of teachers, especially who it seems like they feel done, they feel done learning. And I've started to adopt this curiosity about the world where I hear somebody doing a particular you know, project and I think, oh, how did they do that? What happened there? How did they get the people together who needed to get together? And what made them think of that idea? And so I think having that curiosity and fostering that in kids and also setting an example for kids of me having that curiosity. So I always... I will always tell kids if I am wrong about something. I did an activity during distance learning in the spring when everything first shut down and there was just a flaw in it. It was like a thermodynamics activity in which I challenged them to make a hut for a penguin. And one of the students, his dad's a physics teacher, so it didn't surprise me, but he was like, this isn't work. This doesn't make sense. And I was like, what do you mean it doesn't make sense? I was all mad at first. And then I really looked at it and I was like, oh my gosh, he's right. And so I emailed him and I said, you're right. This doesn't make sense. I'm sorry. And I think teachers need to do more of that so that students understand. And I think parents need to do more of that so that they understand that it's okay to learn new things, even when you're an adult. I had wondered what was one of the lessons that you had learned from your students. And you just answered that question. Wow. Explaining that you were actually mistaken and you're learning and going from there. You have some wonderful resources for makers. And what are some of your absolute favorites that you share on your website or anywhere else? My favorites. Rob Ives does paper engineering. And so I feel like his work, it's actually pretty difficult, pretty challenging to put the stuff together. Because when I first got into him, I was thinking I would use it in the classroom. And then whenever you see something in the classroom, you have to try it yourself first. And so I tried it and I was like, oh, this is pretty hard. Maybe not. And so, but I still think he's really inspiring to follow him on social media and see how he puts, because he'll put out like when he's figuring out a project, he'll put that on social media. And so it's really fascinating. There was Speaking of admitting your mistakes, there was one time that he was trying to figure out how to make, how to pick something up that was magnetic 
And he like tried all these different ways of folding paper and using cardboard because he was like, it can't have any metal in it. And somehow he was fixated on the metal. And then somebody said, well, what if you just use plastic tweezers? And he was like, oh, <laughs> there was this really simple solution <laughs> that he had completely overlooked because he was fixated on, oh, tweezers only come in metal. And he said that on his social media page. So that was, he was really inspiring to me. My favorite, I've looked at a lot of blogs because, you know, when I was researching for makerspace activities, I would just Google stuff and see what blogs came up. And there was one that came up over and over and over again that was just beautiful to look at, but also the projects themselves were both feasible and interesting. There's so many projects that are repetitive out there. And that one's called Babble Dabble Do. And so that's one of my favorites. In terms of art education, I've gotten really into Cassie Stevens. She does pretty traditional art projects, but just the way that she does her classroom management and presents things to students is really engaging and inspiring. And visually, the way she sets things up is great. Also, PBS. PBS is a great website for maker stuff. They have a a stuff spinner where you press a button and you, you put in what you have and you press a button and it gives you a challenge to try. And so we used that during distance learning a little bit just to like throw out to students in case they needed something to do. What else is inspiring? Oh, and then the maker ed webpage, I think is good for maker stuff. I don't know. I, I, I'll keep going. I'll keep thinking of things. Oh, my favorite architect is Shigeru Bon, who does part of the reason he's my favorite. It's because he does cardboard buildings. And so in terms of exploring what you can do with cardboard, and he's also just a really nice guy when you see him speak. Oh, and one more, and this, her name's really hard, but Natalie, have you heard of Natalie Jeremjanko? Mm, I haven't before, no. So she's an artist, but she has, she has like a whole bunch of degrees. It's like mind boggling when you read it. And she has an engineering degree, I think biology or maybe like biomechanics. And she does art projects that are this crazy, beautiful blend of art and science. And so but it's really hard to find images of her pieces because they're more process oriented. And so I would recommend watching her TED talk. She did a TED talk and her name, I have to write it down to remember how to spell it. But, but I think if you try putting in Jerem Janko, it's like this really long name, it'll probably pop up. Her first name is Natalie. Anyway, so she's really inspiring to me too. Natalie Jerem Janko of TED talk. Now I've got to look that up. Yes, you do absolutely have to look it up. <laughs> and I did look it up. Natalie Jeremjanko spells her last name J-E-R-I-M-I-J-E-N-K-O. Her TED Talk is The Art of the Eco Mindset. We should give a shameless plug for your website. You've got this great Makerspace website. Where do people find it? So you can just Google Miss Pottinger's Makerspace. And I put it together for distance learning. And so most of the projects were for that. And so every once in a while, I'll update it. But but the projects are organized according to grade level. But, you know, obviously, if it's a kid who's particularly advanced and they're in kindergarten, they can go to a higher grade level. Or the great thing I think about the activities that are for the younger grade levels is like you can always take those activities and just do a more intense version of them. Like even something like Play-Doh, I feel like you can put Play-Doh in front of an 11-year-old and they can have a great time with that. And so so the younger activities, I always think it's interesting, even if, even if you're too old for it. But, but it is organized according to that. And I haven't, I wrote one, most of my blog entries are projects 
that I tried with my kids because I have a seven-year-old and an 11-year-old. And so they're either projects I tried with my kids or projects that I put together for distance learning. And I did write one article and put it on my blog. And I am thinking about writing more because I have ideas. And sometimes I feel like I have to put them out in the world. But yeah, Miss Pottinger's Makerspace. And finally, Eileen, if people can only get one thing from you as an instructor, artist, mom, architect, and an author of these blog posts, what would you want them to take away from the work you're doing right now? That it's vitally important that we prioritize creativity in our educational practices. Eileen, thank you for your time today. Thank you. You and I have been listening to Eileen Pottinger, artist, scientist, designer, mom, passionate educator, and art and innovation lab teacher at Culver City Unified School District. Find out more about Culver City Unified School District's Art and Innovation Lab by Googling Eileen's website, Ms. Pottinger's Makerspace. That's Ms. Pottinger's Makerspace. Be sure to check out the resources Eileen mentioned, including the grade level activities and a very cool marble innovation project on her blog. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at Two Mavericks. Dot com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.